0: Surfin' USA, surfin', surfer girl, surfin' safari. If you grew up in the early 1960s, or else a later time listening to oldies radio stations, chances are you're familiar with at least one of the aforementioned songs. Written and performed by classic rock band The Beach Boys, they each have come to exemplify a specific lifestyle that of the surfer. Indeed, the early 1960s brought mainstream attention to surfing culture the world over, inspiring an entire generation as a result. Bands like the Beach Boys and movies like Endless Summer and Beach Blanket Bingo helped to promote this most beloved water sport, and created a cultural phenomenon the likes of which can still be seen and felt today. But surfing as a sport and practice goes back much farther than the 1960s. Though its specific origins remain unknown, it has risen from the obscurity of history to the forefront of the popular imagination, and continues to gain new followers with each passing year. What is the history behind surfing? Who was the man who brought it into the modern era? And why does the lifestyle and culture surrounding it continue to enthrall us? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. You know the type. Depending upon where you grew up, chances are you knew one of them personally. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and have known and seen several in my time. I'm referring to the quintessential surfer dude, the ones I know often wore flip-flops and swim trunks, even to school, and sometimes had longer hair with a generally laid-back demeanor. This may sound like a gross exaggeration, a stereotype even, but it was simply who they were. When they weren't at school or focused on their studies, they were often at the beach with their friends, looking to catch that perfect wave on their boards. Such people have become synonymous With beach living and lifestyle, and are recognized as such throughout the world. But from where does it all stem? as previously stated the exact origins of surfing are unknown but the earliest evidence of such practices can be found in the pottery of the moche culture of peru a pre-columbian civilization that predated the inca the oldest of which date back over 3000 years gathering reeds from the totora plant a genus of bulrush indigenous to the region they created lightweight buoyant vessels that could easily traverse great bodies of water referred to as the caballito de totora or little horse of totora by the spanish jesuit missionary jose de acosta in his fifth 1890 account Historia Natural y Moral de las Indias, or Natural and Moral History of the Indians, they were used primarily for fishing, namely along Peru's Pacific coast, or nearby Lake Tiricaca. The rider would straddle the vessel, wielding a sort of trident, the latter of which they would use to stab and catch fish. In fact, the Caballito de Totora is still used by locals to this day, and has even become an attraction upon which tourists can ride. While the Moche used such a vessel for primarily practical purposes, the Polynesian peoples of the Pacific, on the other hand, created their own for sport and recreation. In fact, it is to the various cultures of the Pacific Islands that we owe much of our modern concept of surfing. First observed by European eyes in 1769 during Captain James Cook's famous first voyage, shipmate Joseph Banks recorded the spectacle in his journal as follows. Their chief amusement was carried on by the stern of an old canoe. With this before them, they swam out as far as the outermost breach. Then one or two would get into it, and opposing the blunt end to the breaking wave, were hurried in with incredible swiftness. Sometimes they were carried almost ashore. Despite this first account from a Western perspective, the practice of surfing among Polynesian cultures actually predates European contact, likely by several centuries. In many island cultures in the Pacific, the chief or king of a tribe, known as an Ali'i, was by tradition, inherent right or skill, the best surfer in the community and was granted the best board fashioned out of the finest wood available. As such, he as well as his aristocratic ilk were entitled to the best beaches and surfing spots on a given island, while his constituents, the common people, were allotted separate beaches of their own, though they could gain prestige based upon their surfing prowess. In Samoa and Tahiti, surfing played an even greater role as part of the training of warriors, Early European visitors to these remote islands recorded these exercises in discipline and will, with warriors paddling to surf breaks and spending several hours bravely paddling head on into large surf and riding waves. Traditional canoes would often accompany the warriors out into the water, where their crews and the surfers could swap and practice their mastery of both vessels but if surfing was an integral part of everyday life in tahiti and samoa it was positively ingrained into the society culture and religion of the people of hawaii to the ancient hawaiians surfing wasn't merely a recreational activity for royalty or the military class but an art form of the highest order they referred to this art as Heenalu, which can roughly be translated as wave sliding. The construction of a surfboard was seen as a sacred rite, with a kahuna, or priest, a word that has gone on to mean an expert at any given profession, officiating the religious ceremony. The Hawaiians would, traditionally, choose the wood from one of three types of indigenous trees, which they reserved solely for this purpose. These trees were the Koa, the Hawaiian acacia, the Ulu, the breadfruit tree, a genus of the jackfruit family, and the wili-wili, a flowering tree of the pea family. Special craftsmen were allotted the task of creating the boards, which were each given a specific shape, the olo, which is thick in the middle but gradually becomes thinner near the edges, the kiko-o, which ranges anywhere from 12 to 18 feet or 370 to 550 centimeters in length and requires great prowess to maneuver, and the alaya, about 9 feet, or 275 centimeters in length, which also required great skill to master. Once the board was complete, the ritual practices of surfing began even before its participants entered the ocean, with prayers to the gods for protection and safety from the waves. In the instance of a calm sea, revelers would call upon the gods to deliver great crests. The most skilled of these early surfers were often members of the upper echelons of Hawaiian society, namely chieftains and warriors, and they chose among the best sites around the Big Island in which to practice their craft, two of which are still widely used today. Holualoa Bay and Kahalu'u Bay, both of which are located off the Kona coast. For centuries, surfing would remain confined primarily to these Pacific islands and the Polynesian cultures that populated them. It wasn't until the early 20th century that this sacred sport first gained international attention. Not surprisingly, it was a Hawaiian who brought it onto the world stage. By the time Duke Kahanamoku was born on August 14, 1890, foreign missionaries in Hawaii had all but abolished the ritual practice of surfing. After all, it was attributed to the Hawaiians' native faith, which naturally had to be eradicated to make way for Christianity. By the turn of the century, only a handful of locals were keeping surfing alive, namely for sport. In his formative years, Kahanamoku swam, surfed, and dived religiously. His first surfboard, which was made in the fashion of the traditional Olo style and made out of koa wood, measured 16 feet, or 4.9 meters in length, and weighed some 114 pounds, or 52 kilograms. As a teenager and young man, he won several swimming competitions and broke many records for swimming, including fastest time for the 100-yard, 91-meter freestyle, which he beat in a staggering 55.4 seconds, breaking the old record of 50.8 seconds. As such, he easily qualified for the United States Olympic swimming team, which he joined for the 1912 Summer Olympics in Stockholm, Sweden. He would go on to win a gold medal in the 100-meter freestyle, as well as a silver medal in the men's 4x200-meter freestyle relay. He would go on to compete in two other Summer Olympics, the 1920 Games in Antwerp, Belgium, and the 1924 Games in Paris, France, where he won gold medals in the 100-meter and relay and the silver medal in the 100-meter, respectively. But of all the water sports for which he gained fame, it was surfing about which he was the most passionate. Between, as well as following his retirement from the Olympics, he conducted a series of swimming exhibitions which led him around the world. It was through these events that he introduced surfing to the world at large, as it was only previously known in Hawaii. The biggest and most successful of these exhibitions was held at Freshwater Beach in Sydney, Australia in December of 1914. In fact, his visit proved so influential that he single-handedly credited with starting Australia's surf culture. In fact, a statue of him now stands at the northern headland of said beach, and the Freshwater Surf Club proudly displays one of his signature wooden boards. At this time, Kahanamoku was living in Southern California, where he enjoyed bit parts in Hollywood films. This, combined with his membership at the Los Angeles Athletic Club, provided him the much-needed exposure to further promote surfing culture. For through these channels, he encountered several influential people, who in turn began to practice as well as promote surfing as a sport. As in Australia, the surfing lifestyle that would blossom and thrive in Southern California is owed single-handedly to him. Since his death in 1968, he has become known as the Big Kahuna, as well as the father of modern surfing. As you can see, this most famous and popular water sport has a rich and fascinating history. From its origins in South America and the Pacific, it has been elevated to legendary status as a sport that both the common people and the elite can enjoy, wherever there are beaches and good waves to be ridden. What is it about this unique culture that continues to intrigue and fascinate us? Maybe it's the inextricable link with summer, with the various freedoms and joys it provides, or maybe it's the bravery and courage of its practitioners stepping into the tempestuous waters in an attempt to tame and conquer the massive swells. Whatever the reason, in the words of the Beach Boys, everybody's gone surfing, and by the looks of it, it shows no signs of stopping. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this totally tubular episode. As is always the case, I, along with you, dear listeners, learn a great deal in the process of writing and producing this podcast. I've never been surfing myself, but I'm more than curious now, and is perhaps something I'll try comes the summertime. If you enjoyed this and previous episodes and would like to support me in my content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be directed to three monthly support plans, which fit any budget. Liking and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next week for a look at the world's first cities, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.